morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. If you will, turn in your Bibles back to Nehemiah chapter 13. This morning, with God's help, we will finish our study in the book of Nehemiah. It has uh, been a blessing to me. Uh, I trust it will. It has been a blessing to you and that it will continue to bless us this morning. We uh, have uh, observed much from it and uh, I'm confident in the Lord's blessings and what we will receive from it this morning. So we'll finish out Nehemiah 13 this morning. My wife, Macy, and I, uh, we love good movies. We, uh, we, we love piling up on the couch together and, uh, and diving into a, a good drama. But her idea of what makes for good drama and mine differ somewhat. She likes shows that depict the best and the brightest of reality. I, on the other hand, like shows that depict how reality typically plays out. This was highlighted recently when we were watching one of our favorite shows. And in that show, uh, there was this uh, budding romantic relationship that was cut short by the death of the, the knight in shining armor. While she was appalled by the audacity of these writers to cut short such a sweet storyline, I was refreshed by the depiction of how reality oftentimes plays out. In real life, stories don't often end with everyone's desires being satisfied and their dreams coming true, do they? As we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah, we encounter one such ending. The truth is that after witnessing the work of revival among God's people, the end of this book is a real downer. And if it were merely a show for entertainment, it it might be satisfying to those like myself. But being that this is the history of the spiritual state of God's people, it's really just sad. What we find in chapter 13 is that Israel is yet again in spiritual decline. And so the, the question that we're saddled with as we contemplate this passage is what does the spiritual decline of Israel teach us? By God's grace, the answer to that will be clear by the end of our time here this morning. The the chapter before us opens up with a, a continuation of the Reformation that we've been reading about in Nehemiah since chapter 8. We've, had, we've seen God work among His people to awaken them to the reality of their sin and their need for repentance. We've seen there among them a renewed commitment to obey the law of God. And as such, the, the people of Israel had grown an appetite for God's Word. And here in the beginning of chapter 13, the, the people are continuing to receive the Word of God and allow it to reform and reshape their lives. Verse 1 tells us, On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And that phrase, on that day, does not necessarily mean that that this reading of the book took place on the day of the events of chapter 12 that we learned about last week. There is likely some separation here. In the original language, uh, on that day means about that time. 
And that distinction is, is really necessary to observe because the rest of this chapter is going to delineate for us the various things that happened after Nehemiah's departure from Jerusalem when he went back to Susa. You'll remember that in chapter 2, Nehemiah had asked leave of his post there uh, serving the court of King Artaxerxes. And he asked leave for a definite amount of time. When that time had come, he was true to his word, and he returned to his royal duty. So in verse 6 we read, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. As such, what we find in this chapter is a, a record of the spiritual decline of Israel during Nehemiah's absence. And then here we find Nehemiah's response to their spiritual state upon his return. However, the, the chapter begins with Israel continuing their efforts at spiritual reformation. It, it tells us that for a period of time, after Nehemiah had returned to the court of Artaxerxes, the people of God continued receiving and submitting to the word of God. Verse 1 goes on to say that in their hearing from the book of Moses... It was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. So the the passage that was read on that day was clearly Deuteronomy chapter 23, wherein God explicitly forbid the Ammonites and the Moabites from ever being admitted to the assembly of Israel. But we need to pay close attention to the response of the Israelites in hearing this passage. And their response is recorded for us in verse 3. Look at it with me. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, the remainder of chapter 13 is going to go on to describe this spiritual decline of Israel. And this here in verse 3, gives us a hint as to how that decline began. Did you notice the difference between the command that God gave in Deuteronomy 23 and what the response of the people was? God specifically said that no Ammonite or Moabite ought to ever be admitted to the assembly of His people. Yet in hearing this, the people apparently excluded all those of foreign descent. Now, commentators differ over the interpretation of this action, but the the exegesis is clear. The Israelites went beyond what God had commanded. And that, friends, is the definition of legalism. You know, oftentimes we hear that term legalism used today, and what's meant is those who who are careful to pay attention to every aspect of what God has said, seeking to faithfully obey His word. But friends, that is not what legalism means. Legalism is the action of adding to what God has commanded. This happens for various reasons and out of different motivations. However, the result of legalism is always the same. Legalism always distances people from the words that God has spoken and the motivations behind His commands. 
Legalism always leaves people checking a list of boxes, unsure or ill-informed as to how exactly this obedience brings them closer to God. This is why children that are raised in legalistic homes often rebel so vehemently. Because it's never been communicated to them where God has said to keep these lists, much less why God desires such behavior. And this subtle but very real distance from the precise words of God is the best explanation for why in the several years of Nehemiah's absence the trajectory of Israel becomes one of spiritual decline rather than spiritual vitality. We see this decline in, in three different areas of life in Israel. And, and we see them as Nehemiah returns to Israel and sets about restoring these areas. The first area is that evidence, the first area that evidenced the spiritual decline and thus required Nehemiah's restoration was the spiritual decline of the house of God. Then we'll see here the spiritual decline of the holiness of the Sabbath. And finally, the spiritual decline of the homes of Israel. The house of God, the holiness of the Sabbath, and the homes there in Israel. First, we'll consider Nehemiah's restoration of the house of God. The, the, the temple, if you will. In verse 4 and 5 we read, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where, he had, where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. The time reference here that reads before this, it, it does not refer to the reading of the law and the subsequent legalistic actions described in Verses 1 through 3. More likely, it's a reference to the return of Nehemiah to Jerusalem that we're told about in verse 6, where again we read, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. But listen to how Nehemiah describes this thing that he found upon his return in verse 7. Verse 7, we read, And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. To understand this sobering indictment that Nehemiah pronounces here, we must understand who both of these characters are, Tobiah and Eliashib. If you've been with us throughout our study of Nehemiah, these names should ring a bell, and they should immediately bring consternation to the reader. Tobiah was an enemy of Israel. He was one of the chief opponents to the work of God in rebuilding the wall and reestablishing the people of God in the city of God. In the narrative of Nehemiah, the, the author makes a point to highlight the taunts of Tobiah as Nehemiah led the people in their rebuilding effort earlier in the book. Chapter 4, verse 3, tells us both who Tobiah was and how he engaged with the people of God in their service to God. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, Tobiah the Ammonite said, Yes, what they are building, referring to the wall, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
deriding the people of God. Now remember, the reading that we just talked about, the people of Israel having received from Deuteronomy chapter 23. We're some years removed from that reading now, and the casting out of all of these foreigners. But remember, in that passage, who had God said explicitly not to allow into the assembly of Israel? The Ammonites and the Moabites. So Tobiah, an Ammonite, was a leader among those that God had said never to allow into the covenant community. And how is it that he led these Ammonites? By deriding the work that God was doing in and through his people. Not only deriding it, taunting them, but in the narrative of chapter 4, as we read earlier, it's clear that Tobiah is one of those leading the charge in war against Jerusalem. But then we look at Eliashib. Eliashib was the high priest there in Jerusalem. Eliashib was supposed to be in charge of keeping the temple and all of its activities pure and set apart for the worship of God. Yet here we find that the chamber where the contributions to God for the ministers of his temple had been cleared out to make room for the enemy of God. Nehemiah rightly characterizes such actions as evil because it was a blatant disregard for the holiness of God and the explicit commands of God. Given this, Nehemiah responds in a way that you might expect from a movie character who's found their spouse to be unfaithful by throwing out all of their belongings on the front lawn. Verses 8 and 9 record Nehemiah's actions, saying, He was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And that, that movie character analogy is really fitting because throughout the Old Testament, when Israel was found to be committing idolatry, it was often said of them that they were committing adultery against the Lord. Now in this instance, Israel may not be bowing down to other gods, yet they are dishonoring the holy nature of God by making room for the enemy of God in the temple of God. And they're devaluing the worship of God by neglecting to distribute the provisions necessary for the Levites to do the work of God at the temple of God. Look at verse 10. There, Nehemiah describes this neglect. He says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The Levites weren't getting paid, so they had to go back to working their fields. You'll remember we observed in chapter 10 that the whole of Israel had, had taken the obligations of the covenant upon themselves. One of which was to bring the first fruits of all that they had to the temple for the wages of the priests and Levites. The summary of this renewed commitment from them was given in chapter 10 verse 30. Saying so confidently, we will not neglect the house of our God. Yet that is 
exactly what has happened. And there's no doubt about it. As we consider Nehemiah's response to this in verse 11, he says, So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And just as he restored the chamber of the temple where Tobiah had lodged, now he works to restore the ministry of the temple. They're restoring the Levites and the singers. Verse 11 says that he gathered them together and set them in their stations. Verse 12 goes on to tell us that Judah resupplied the storehouse. And verse 13 tells us that Nehemiah appointed as treasurers over the storehouses certain men, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So Nehemiah worked yet again to restore the right temple worship that was so central to the life of Israel. And with these actions to restore the house of God, we read the first prayer from Nehemiah that that will become a refrain throughout this passage. It actually signals to us the divisions of this chapter. The repetitious prayer of Nehemiah is that the Lord would remember him. Look there at verse 14 with me. Nehemiah prays, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. The term good deeds used here is that rich Hebrew word chesed. It it usually describes that the, the, the covenantal loving kindness that God shows towards his children. But here, Nehemiah says that he wants God to remember him for his covenant-keeping love toward God. But as the text progresses, Nehemiah continues to find Israel in spiritual decline. In verse 15, he sees that he must restore in Jerusalem not just the house of God, but also the holiness of the Sabbath. In verse 15, Nehemiah writes, In those days I saw in Judah... People treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah goes on further to describe the situation in verse 16, saying, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Nehemiah's indictment here is not in relation to the Tyrians living within the city. We've already seen that God did not forbid all foreigners from living in Jerusalem. The indictment centers on God's people failing to keep the Sabbath as a holy day, set apart for the service and worship of God. In other words, there was no work that was... supposed to be done on the Sabbath. But when Nehemiah looked around on the Sabbath day, there was work and commerce all around. We've already observed in the narrative of the book how important Sabbath keeping was under the Mosaic Covenant. God God instituted it in Exodus 20, and as long as the Mosaic Covenant was in place, it was to be kept. The Sabbath was, by God's design, a tool that oriented people's lives around God. 
It simultaneously required God's people to take their attention away from the pursuits of pleasures and daily provisions and give their attention to the worship of the Lord God, who was the source of all of their pleasures and provisions. This was a strange thing among the nations of the ancient Near East. And as such, it was one of the clearer demarcations of Israel being set apart as God's people. Their trust and submission to God in this way was intended to magnify the greatness and holiness of their God. This is why God called it a holy day. That's also why, back in chapter 10, when they were renewing their covenant to the excuse me, renewing their commitment to the covenant that God had made with them, the assembly of Israel had pledged, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. But several years had passed since that pledge was made. And the people had once again failed to keep their covenant obligations. Therefore, Nehemiah acts again. In effort to restore holiness in Jerusalem, he acts. In verse 17 we read, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? There is that categorical indictment again of evil. And he takes the opportunity to remind the Israelites of the ramifications of failing to uphold the conditions of the covenant. Saying in verse 18, Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Of course, the the disaster that Nehemiah speaks of here was the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem which was the cause of all of their rebuilding efforts laid out in the beginning of this book. But Israel displays for us here the reality that man has such a short memory when it comes to remembering the destruction that sin brings. Yet by God's grace, Nehemiah remembers. He hasn't forgotten the destruction that sin brings. Nehemiah remembers. And and being a man of action, he he doesn't just talk about the seriousness of their sin and the consequences of it. He acts. First, confronting the nobles and reminding them of the severity of neglecting to honor a holy God by keeping his holy days. Then according to verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. So beyond just appealing to the people to restrain from this sin, Nehemiah acts in his capacity as a government official to cut off the possibility of conducting business on the Sabbath. He ordered that the city gates be shut, and he put servants there at the gate to keep watch. And it's a good thing that he put these watchmen there because apparently verse 20 tells us that while the Sabbath may have been restored inside Jerusalem, just outside the gates, people were working all the same. To to try to get a, a jump on the market rush, they would camp outside the city gates on the Sabbath, waiting for them to open. But Jerusalem 
was supposed to be known as a, a city and a people at rest before the Lord on the Sabbath. And the hustle and bustle of merchants at the gate would hinder that kind of reputation. So, with an escalation in his tactics, Nehemiah says in verse 21, But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. If the merchants wouldn't remove themselves, Nehemiah would have them forcibly removed. And apparently they believed him because they didn't come back. Church, there's a lot that separates us from this old covenant setting. But the needs of man reflected in this passage are just as true today as they were 2,500 years ago. And we need men in the church with the heart of Nehemiah. Men who are concerned to honor the holiness of God. Men who are zealous to see the people of God reflect the holiness of their God as they're called to. We need men who will lovingly confront fellow believers in sin. Who aren't concerned about being out of step with cultural norms and expected ministry practices. The the church needs those who don't just talk about purity in the church, but they work to build it. That's what Nehemiah sought to do. And that's what we need men seeking to do today. Nehemiah was finding to be true what what later became a slogan of the Protestant reformers. Semper reformanda, secundum verbe dei. That is to say, the church is always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. The people of God always naturally drift toward sin, not sanctified living. And because of our sinful nature, we need to continually receive and submit to the instruction of the Word of God. And this was highlighted in yet another area that Nehemiah had to address among the Israelites. In the third movement of the text, we see Nehemiah's efforts at the restoration of the home. In verse 23 we read, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So, as earlier in Nehemiah's narrative, the issue of intermarriage with surrounding nation comes up again. And just as was the case in chapter 10, the issue of intermarriage here with Israel is not one of ethnicity but idolatry. Everyone. Everyone worships. Whether they know it or not, everyone worships the one true God or a God of their own making. And as we discussed in chapter 10, for the people of God to permanently unite their lives to those outside of covenant relation to God is to commit to a life of divided loyalties. In chapter 10, we heard the commitment of these Israelites saying, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. 
which was just a, a commitment to the command of God given in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And, and why? Well, God tells us in Deuteronomy 7, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And sure enough, what has resulted from these intermarriages here in chapter 13? Verse 24 tells us, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Church, if God's people are going to be continually reformed by the Word of God, they have to be able to understand the Word of God. And these intermarriages resulted in the next generation not being able to understand the language of Israel, the language of God's revelation to His people. So, in accordance with God's law, in Deuteronomy 25, and in keeping with the oath that Israel had taken on themselves in chapter 10, Nehemiah puts an end to these intermarriages. He goes on to excommunicate the guilty parties from Israel, but not before bringing judgment against them. Again, the chapter takes on a scene that's not unlike something we'd see in a movie with Nehemiah having what reads like a violent outburst. But, but on closer examination, we can deduce that this wasn't a man out of control that wouldn't be consistent with the character that we've understood Nehemiah to develop throughout this text. Certainly he was impassioned. But the language of confrontation used here is actually judicial in the original text. The calling down of curses and the the beatings reported in verse 25 should be understood as a fulfillment of God's civil law that he made known in Deuteronomy 25. And the the pulling out of hair was known throughout the Old Testament as a sign of shame. And so it should be understood here as a, a sign of great shame for profaning the covenant that God had graciously made with Israel and that they so solemnly committed to themselves. Beyond that, Nehemiah also had the people repeat the oath that they had previously taken, undoubtedly adding to the shame of the plucking out of their hair, recalling that they've said these words before, and yet again, they have failed to keep them. He has them repeat that oath and Then he gave them some instruction concerning the importance of the matter. But only after the description of the proceedings do we find out just how deep the problem of intermarriage had become in Israel. In verse 28, we we find that this practice reached even to the family of the high priest. And in a manner that was not only offensive to God, but tactically perilous to the well-being of Israel. The grandson of the high priest had married the son of Sanballat, the chief opponent of Israel. The one, this Sanballat, who had earlier in the narrative mocked the very idea that God could bring help to his people, now is married into the family of the high priest of Israel. 
And with that revelation, Nehemiah records the only prayer in this chapter that's not concerning himself. He prays what can only be understood as an imprecatory prayer against them. One that calls down God's judgment on them. In verse 29, he asks that God would remember how they desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Then in verses 30 and 31, Nehemiah gives a summary of the work that he had done throughout this chapter. But it can also be understood as a summary of his life and ministry toward the people of God. He says that he cleansed, he established, and he provided for the worship of God in Israel. He cleansed, he established, and he provided for the work and worship of God in Israel. Nehemiah closes his narrative with one last prayer for himself. He prays, Remember me, O God, for good. This is the last of three such prayers in this chapter. And Nehemiah has prayed like this before. You'll remember that in chapter 5, verse 19, Nehemiah prayed, Remember for my good, O God, all that I've done for this people. But there's a, a peculiar concentration of these prayers in this final chapter. He's prayed like this before, but we have three prayers of Nehemiah like this in this one chapter. It's, it's concentrated here so much so that one can't help but think that these prayers create an overtone, a, a lens through which we are to see this passage. This is especially true when we appreciate the fact that in reading the book of Nehemiah, we're, we're reading the last of the chronological history of the Old Testament. In our English Bibles, the, the order of books doesn't reflect the setting of the historical timeline. But with the close of this chapter, we are reading the close of the history of God's people in the Old Testament. So, as these prayers signal the divisions of this final chapter, an un, unmistakable theme emerges. With each of these prayers in, in verse 14, verse 22, and verse 31, a contrast is seen between Nehemiah's persistent faithfulness and the persistent unfaithfulness of the majority of God's people. And with that juxtaposition, a need rises to the surface. What, what becomes clear in the final scene of the Old Testament is that the people of God will never be able to to uphold God's law. They have failed to do so throughout the Old Testament. And we find them failing again at the end of the Old Testament. And displaying this need is actually the purpose of the law of God. Paul tells us the purpose of the law of God in Romans chapter 3. We read there, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that... Every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes only knowledge of sin. So we see here the need of Israel and their inability to keep 
God's law. And, but it's not just the unfaithfulness of Israel that Nehemiah's prayers teach us. The very content of his prayers, asking God to remember his righteous deeds, leave us asking, where is Nehemiah's assurance before God? Where in his life of faithful service, what rest is there for the faithful servant of God? Here at the close of his ministry, we're simply left with these prayers. Remember, O God, my good deeds. Now, it's, it's not wrong for faithful saints to ask God to remember their righteous deeds. But again, the concentration of these requests of God is, is intended to teach us something. Where's the rest for God's faithful servants? Where's the assurance before God for these faithful servants? You know, I said at the outset this morning that Macy and I love good movies. And one of the elements of a good movie is that it leaves you longing for a better world. And that church is what the close of the Old Testament is meant to leave us with. A longing for a better day. A day when the people of God would not labor under a conditional covenant. A day when the people of God would labor in obedience under a covenant in which all the conditions had already been met. Of course, that day has come. And the birth, the life, and the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. The ladies here who've been studying the book of Galatians will remember how Paul lays this out in Galatians 4, saying, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Because we couldn't do it ourselves. For the modern audience, looking back on the narrative of Nehemiah, and more specifically, who now we are positioned on this side of the cross, the close of the history of the Old Testament is meant to have one application. And that is, it's meant to cause us to treasure the work of Christ. And that has two different primary implications for two different audiences. And I don't know where everyone in this room stands. I can't read everyone's heart. And so it's necessary that we consider the implications of this for two different audiences. For those who are not united to Christ by saving faith, you're meant to read the testimony of these Old Testament figures and see in yourself the inability to keep the law of God. You're meant to see both the necessity of holiness before God and simultaneously see your inability or perhaps your apathy to achieve holiness yourself. Consequently, you should be left longing, friend, for a Savior who could fulfill the law of God on your behalf. And the testimony of Scripture is clear that there is one, only one, who has accomplished this for all who believe. Friend, if that describes you, the only right response to the Word of God this morning is for you to trust in the atoning work of Christ. 
And in trusting it, you will treasure Him and submit to Him. But for those who do know the saving work of Christ, the application is much the same. The testimony of Nehemiah and the Old Testament Scriptures should cause us to treasure the person and work of Christ. We recognize that by God's grace, we labor in obedience, not for assurance of salvation, but from assurance of our salvation in the completed work of Christ. Our hope's not in our ability to fulfill the conditions of a covenant, but in Christ's ability to fulfill the conditions on our behalf. And that gospel truth leads us to savor the work of Christ to submit to the Lordship of Christ and to serve the body of Christ. This, church, is what we're to take from these closing words in Nehemiah. Pray with me. Father, I do thank you for the hard truth of your word that we need a Savior, that we are sinners who are unable to save ourselves. But, oh God, I thank you that you have not left us without a solution to this problem, but that in Christ you have fulfilled all that we need and that in Christ you have made a way for your children, apart from the law, to be counted righteous before you and to have life eternal. God, we thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.